I've got here four books to show you. Four books. First one, here's a little book, Churchill, Embattled Hero, a little biography. If that's too small for you, how about this? Hitler, another biography, but on a rather different scale. If that hasn't depressed you enough, I've got here The Rape of Nanking. Some people from the West might not know about that. We ought to know about that. Terrible atrocities in China in the late 30s. And then if you want something lighter that's more cheery, Great Escapes. There's some people getting out over a barbed wire fence. Now, what have these books got in common? Well, what they've got in common is they cover basically the same period, don't they? 1930s through to 45. They are centred around the same massive event, World War II. And yet they're all different, aren't they? They have different emphases. They have different themes. They've all got strong links, but they've chosen to emphasise a different aspect of that period of history, of that central theme of World War II. Now, we have four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and they all have the same subject, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all centred around the same person, the Son of God. But they're with different themes. They, They fit together, but they have different emphases. And we've read from Luke's Gospel this morning. And his main theme, well, there it is on the notice sheet. His main theme is, God has a plan for needy people, Jesus bringing salvation. He also has quite a few sub-themes. Here are two of them. The work of the Holy Spirit and believers telling others. And he has other sub-themes, but those are the two that I'm mentioning for the moment. That's Luke's big theme. And it's also Luke's main message about the birth of Jesus. Let's turn to Luke chapters 1 to 2. You really will need that open in front of you to follow this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, there are still quite a few left on the shelves back there. Feel free to get one. Luke chapters 1 to 2. Luke's main message about the birth of Jesus is the same as his theme for the book. God has a plan for needy people, Jesus bringing salvation through the Holy Spirit and us joyfully telling others. So last Sunday morning we heard Matthew's main message about the birth of Jesus and in the evening John's main message about the birth of Jesus and now we're on to Luke's main message about the birth of Jesus. Now if all of that so far, hearing about the theme for a book, sounds a little like an English lesson at school, think again, because we're not just studying a piece of literature, we're hearing God's message to us. God has only given us one book from him, and he's given a significant part of it to the writings of Luke. Did you know that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else? I know he only wrote two books, Luke and Acts, but they're pretty big. And they actually both together cover this theme. God knows we need to hear this. He has a plan for needy people. Jesus bringing salvation through the Holy Spirit and us joyfully telling others. So let's work our way through that now in Luke's chapters 1 and 2 about the birth of Jesus. God has a plan. Now, Luke is really interested in timings. I'll show you that. Children, listen to these verses and spot the things to do with time. 
Chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Chapter 1, verse 23. When his time of service was completed, he, Zechariah, returned home. Verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Nazareth. Verse 39, on to verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Skipping over a few of them into chapter 2. Verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. And then you move on to some people in the temple. And what were they doing? Waiting for the time that God had prophesied. Why do you get this time, time, reference to time all the time in Luke? Well, Luke is telling us everything is working according to a timetable. Whose timetable? Well, Luke chapters 1 and 2 are full of references back to the old Hebrew scripture. Verse 72 of chapter 1. It's about God remembering his covenant, his promises to his people Israel. Chapter 2 has got quotations from Isaiah, prophecy being fulfilled. What's it telling us? This is all happening according to God's timetable. Luke is telling us God has a plan. God is carrying out what he planned and promised in his timing. None of this is random. None of this is accidental. God is carrying out his plan. Now, children, at school, are you told to plan ahead if you've got a big project or a big piece of work? I reckon you are, probably. Plan ahead. I remember seeing a sign in a workshop and it said, plan ahead. And plan and then A-H were in big letters and then it hit the end of the sign and E-A-D were squeezed in in small letters, making the point, plan ahead. God isn't like that. He has planned ahead. He doesn't get his timings wrong like a contestant in the Great British Bake Off. He's got it all planned. And Luke is telling us here, God is carrying out his plan. He's also telling us this plan is real history. God, who is outside of time and unconstrained by time, has a plan that took place in real time. He's showing us that with all this reference to time. It's in the time of King Herod. It's in the days when Caesar Augustus had a census. He's saying this is real history. People say, don't they, Christianity's true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, you can say that about opinions, can't you? One Direction are better musicians than Beethoven. That's opinion, isn't it? Now, hopefully we'd all agree it's a silly opinion, but you can't prove it wrong, because it's opinion and you can't prove or disprove it. But you can't say, that's true for you, but not true for me. You can't say that about things like, did World War II happen? Do you have cancer? How much money is in your bank account? And Luke is saying, look, the gospel is in that second category. 
It claims to be real history. It's open to investigation. It's not just that's true for you but not for me. God has a plan. God has a plan for needy people. Let's move on to that now, for needy people. Luke fills his gospel with needy people. Right the way through his gospel. And it's true of these chapters as well. Let's see some examples. Who does he start with? Who are the first people? Oh, they're a couple called Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what are they like? Verse 7. Verse 7. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well on in years to be old and childless. In that society made you vulnerable and a failure. It's harsh, but that's how it was viewed. They are almost the ultimate example of neediness, old and childless. And then he gives prominence to women, doesn't he? Luke has a lot of women occurring in his book, including here. Yes, you read a bit about Zechariah, but his wife Elizabeth comes across a lot better. Joseph doesn't even get a mention, but Mary, well, she's here a lot. There are two people waiting for Jesus in the temple. One of them's a man, and one of them is a woman who's been a widow for decades. That made her vulnerable. Luke shows Jesus to be born in poverty. He's the one who tells us there was no room at the inn and he's placed in a manger. And then Luke's the one who chooses to tell us the first visitors were shepherds. Now, children, what do you think of the shepherds? How would you picture those shepherds? Don't think of the people you see on Christmas cards. Because the Christmas cards make them look so nice, glowing, smart. You've never seen such smart shepherds as those on Christmas cards. Think like this. What do most people think of gypsies? What do most people think of gypsies? Now you all know, don't you, what most people think of gypsies. And it's not very complimentary. And it's not very politically correct. Maybe the people of Forestside Loughborough, they're more open-minded, aren't they, about gypsies, surely? Yes. And how many of them are saying to the gypsies, you need somewhere to stay? Park on my front drive. Uh, you need to use the bathroom here, have a key, help yourself. I don't think many of them are, are they? Well, I haven't noticed any doing such. People don't have a very good view of gypsies. I'm not commenting on whether that's right or wrong. But the shepherds are the first visitors. That's like having gypsies as the first visitors. Now, why does Luke do this? Why does he have Jesus surrounded by needy people and Jesus himself, in a way, being a needy person? Well, because God cares for the needy. Because Jesus came for the needy. And Luke is showing that this is a reality, not just a theory. I want to show you three things that follow from that. This care for the needy. Here's the first. It's good news for you if you're needy. Isn't that obvious? Do you feel yourself to be weak? Vulnerable? Failing? Looked down on by others? Maybe even rejected by some? Hurting? Isn't it good news? Jesus came for people like that. Do you find yourself to be falling for sin again and again and again and you wonder, will it ever stop? Is it just going to be like this always? Are there things that make you feel guilty and you're glad no one else knows those things? The good news is, 
Jesus came for people like that. That's the first thing that follows from this. It's good news if you feel you need. Here's the second thing that follows from it. The church, when healthy, is full of needy people. Now, what do you, picture in your mind a successful church. I reckon we can all probably think of churches we reckon are successful. And the sort I tend to think of are stacked full of young people, uh, trendy people, successful people, up-and-coming people, stable and sorted people. It's a church heaving with such people. But that's not the sign of a healthy church, no. The sign of a healthy church is a church that is a place for needy people. It's bringing to Christ and it's bringing together to each other people who are struggling, people who find it hard to cope with life, people society doesn't think much of. That's a healthy church, a church seeing people like that being made one in Christ. Here's the third thing that follows from. It's a plan for needy people. Jesus came for needy people. I reckon this is the most important one. It's this. We must be people with a sense of need. We must be. You cannot expect a part in salvation from Jesus and at the same time keep up an idea of yourself as one of the successful people, one of the better people, in some way superior to others. That's your outlook on yourself. Can you really expect a part in this salvation that Luke tells us again and again came to the needy people? Now this doesn't mean if God has gifted you with intelligence, you've got to claim to be stupid. If God has gifted you with practical ability, you've got to claim to be incompetent. If God's given you one of those characters I envy, which is just good with people, a sunny sort of disposition. You've got to claim to be socially awkward. No, that's just, that's just silly. That's just self-deceiving. But it does mean if you tend to feel rather pleased with yourself, superior to others, deserving, you need to think again. Because in Luke, the people who received salvation from Jesus were the opposite to that. Luke keeps on giving us pairs of people in his Gospels. There are two thieves on crosses, there are two sons, there are two men praying in the temple. And all the time, the one who receives salvation is the one with a sense of need. And the one who feels superior does not receive the salvation. I reckon many of us, and I have to say us, tend to think of ourselves as better than others, superior to certain people. And that means the gospel hasn't really seeped in and got enough of a grip of our view of ourselves. Children here, you might know lots of answers from the Bible. I hope you do. That's good if you do. But you might think of yourselves as a bit better than other people because you know the answers. But that doesn't make you a Christian. Because a Christian is a person who has a sense of need of Jesus. God has a plan. For needy people, Jesus bringing salvation. Let's think about that part now, Jesus bringing salvation. Now there's a good case for saying that the theme verse of Luke is chapter 19, verse 10. I'll read to you chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. 
You can make a good case for saying that all of Luke is about that. The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Salvation for the needy. And you can see that in chapters 1 and 2. Most obviously, the message to the shepherds. Chapter 2, verse 11. The angel said to the shepherds, Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. A saviour. It's about Jesus bringing salvation. And Luke has no narrow view of salvation. Let's try to get a bit of a flavour of how big Luke's view of salvation is. We're going to rattle through quite a few verses here. Are you ready for this? First of all, it's about God bringing his prom- carrying out his promises for his people Israel. It's about a people, Israel. So, for example, chapter 1, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. God's fulfilling promises for his people Israel. Ancient promises that he's going to make a people for himself. But Luke then makes it even bigger. Because he says it's not just about one nation in one place in the world. No, it's going to burst out beyond Israel across the world. Chapter 2, verse 30. 2 verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's for Gentiles, non-Jews, it's for the whole world. This is big. But as well as big, it's also personal. It's also for the individual. It's a salvation out of care for obscure individuals. Listen to Mary, chapter 1, verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. In other words, mindful of me. He's noticed me, and he's raised me up. It's personal. And this salvation is about forgiveness. Chapter 1, verse 77. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. It's about God passing over your sins, wiping out your sins, forgiving them. To put it another way, it's God's favour that takes away our disgrace. Chapter 1, verse 25. Verse 25, the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now I know that's Elizabeth about having a baby, but it's a great picture of salvation. He has favour on us and he takes away our disgrace, our shame, our loss of face. The greatest loss of face, which is he sees our sin. What a salvation. There's more. It's not just forgiveness, though. It goes beyond that. It's about God's care for us in this life. 1 verse 53. Verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. This is no theory that, well, I think I've got forgiveness. No, it's about his care for us now and forever. Verse 55. 
to Abraham and his descendants forever. It's not just this life, it's beyond this life. And this salvation brings a great reversal. A great reversal. Verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Now, we love a great reversal, don't we? Children, if you think about stories you read, there's often a great reversal. There is the powerful baddie eventually is brought down, and the poor goodie is eventually raised up. So, for example, there's the cruel slave master and he beats his innocent and long-suffering slaves. And they're waiting for, and we, as we read it or watch it, are waiting for a great reversal, aren't we? The day when the slaves are released. And that slave master is found guilty of some great crime and thrown into prison and the slaves inherit his estate and his money. And when that happens, oh, we all enjoy that, don't we? We enjoy a great reversal. But we love it because the slaves in the story are innocent and virtuous and we identify with them. We think we're on their side. Now, salvation in Luke does have an element of that. Jesus will turn the tables on the oppressor. He'll turn the tables for the oppressed. But Luke also has a twist on this. Do you remember the theme verse of Luke? 19 verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But who was the first person it was said about? Well, chapter 19 is about a man called Zacchaeus. And the Son of Man came to seek and save him. He was despised. He was an outcast. He was shunned. But he was not an innocent victim. He was a greedy cheat. He was a swindler who trod on the poor. And Jesus came to save him. Jesus brought a great reversal for him. Luke paints for us such a great salvation. For people who are needy, not because they're innocent victims, but because they're guilty sinners. God has a plan for needy people, Jesus bringing salvation through the Holy Spirit. Now, how does Father Christmas get his gifts to people? Well, it's easy, isn't it? Down the chimney. Well, what if you haven't got a chimney? And how does he get round to all those children all around the world? It's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Don't think too hard about it. But when it comes to God getting his gifts to people, it isn't left a mystery, don't think too hard about it. No, we're told how. We're told how he gets his gifts to people through the Holy Spirit. That God's work in the world is through the Holy Spirit is a big theme of Luke. Let's see some examples. I hope you're coping with this rattling through lots of verses. I'm going to do it again. Chapter 1, verse 15. John the Baptist's work is through the Holy Spirit. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. How does God become man? How will Jesus be conceived? Oh, it's through the Holy Spirit. Verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Later we find this holy woman, Elizabeth, praising God. Why? Through the Holy Spirit. Verse 41. 
When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she praised God. And then Zechariah praises God and he prophesies. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Verse 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And then right towards the end of our passage we have a man called Simeon and he has a message that's so important for us and for Mary and Joseph. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 verse 27. Moved by the Spirit he went into the temple courts and he prophesied. And you move on in Luke and you find it's through the Holy Spirit that God's gift God's gift was purchased by Jesus 2,000 years ago as he died on the cross. How does it get to you and me in 2018? How can your life be changed in 2019? By something that happened all that time ago on a cross in Israel. Oh, through the Holy Spirit. God has a plan for needy people. Jesus bringing salvation through the Holy Spirit and us joyfully telling others. In these chapters we find God's love and care for needy people. And when these needy people receive his love and care, what do they do? They tell others. Needy Elizabeth is given a child. And what does she do? She says, the Lord has done this for me. The Lord has done... This isn't just an accident. This isn't just, wow, isn't that lucky? The Lord has done this for me. Look at, she says to others, look what the Lord's done for me. Lowly Mary finds favour with God. And what does she do? She tells others, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, she says. Despised shepherds find this Saviour. And what do they do? Chapter 2, verse 17 When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told them. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. They tell others. Long-widowed Anna. She's been without her husband for decades. And now she sees Jesus. And what does she do? Chapter 2, verse 38 Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, did any of these people sound like they'd been miserably beaten into, you ought to do some evangelism? They didn't, did they? They didn't sound like that. They were filled with joy. And so it just, if you're filled with joy about something, you're unlikely to keep it in, are you? You're unlikely to keep it to yourself. They're spreading the joy they've received. And this continues through Luke and into his second volume we call Acts. People filled with joy because of salvation just tell others. The New Testament doesn't beat us into you must all be open air preachers. You must all do door to door knocking. Come on, aren't you doing it, you guilty person? No, it shows apostles going into all the world and establishing churches. And those churches becoming places where people receive the joy of salvation. And then, well, they're likely to tell, aren't they? Their relatives, their work colleagues, their neighbours, their friends. It's a bit like this. Children, do you know what a maternity ward is? Maternity ward is where babies are born. 
And I heard of a maternity board where people were rather surprised by a loud and clearly very happy Turkish man who was going round to everyone saying, he had a big box of sweets, he was going round to everyone saying, I have a daughter, I have a new daughter, you have a sweet. He's going round to everyone, I have a daughter, you have a sweet. He just was joyful about having a new daughter and he wanted to share it with everyone. Isn't that rather what we should be like? We have salvation. We know the Saviour. He's come. Can I tell you about him? What's Luke's main message about the birth of Jesus? I hope you've got it by now. God has a plan for needy people. Jesus bringing salvation through the Holy Spirit and us joyfully telling others. Have you faced up to your neediness? Have you let go of any pretense at superiority? Have you received this salvation? And will you joyfully tell others?